you know, I talk about, you know, the fate side, but it was business. It was a business decision that I had to put in the time, put in the effort and back it up and stay healthy. And so I think that I want to leave this year and, and kind of have that mindset. Welcome into another episode of Baseball Americas from Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today, we're talking to James Ramsey, currently the associate head coach at Georgia Tech and 2012 ACC Player of the Year while at Florida State. Talked to James a few weeks back during Christmas break for Tech, and we talk about his recruitment. He was the son of two Florida State alumni, but he didn't just waltz into Tallahassee. Mike Martin had to work for it a little bit. Uh, we also talk about a similar decision after his junior year. James turned down second-round money from the Twins to return to Florida State for his senior season, a senior season that ended up being uh, one of the better senior years of any prospect, any any college player over the past 10 years, especially in the, the draft bonus pool era. Uh, it was a great conversation on a bunch of topics, leadership, getting better year-to-year, what you can learn from a year mostly spent on the bench that you can't when you're playing every day. Uh, after this conversation, I'm a big believer in James, the Georgia Tech program. Hard to imagine this guy in Coach Hall not having a ton of success year after year. Uh, episodes are from Phenom to the Farm. Drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoyed this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And go check out past interviews. I believe this is going to be episode 70, so a lot of good stuff in the feed. And if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. The Prospect Handbook is coming soon. You can pre-order now. you got spring training coming before you know it. College baseball starting soon. It is a great time to be subscribed to BA. And with that, let's talk to James Ramsey. All right, joining in for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm, he was a first-round pick of the Cardinals in the 2012 draft out of Florida State, and he's the current associate head coach at Georgia Tech, James Ramsey. James, thank you so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Yeah, Kyle, thanks for having me. Excited to get this thing rolling. Of course, as am I. Uh, I want to, before we jump into your playing career, I want to I want to talk quickly about your, your coaching. Right now at Georgia Tech, you're in a it's that weird point in college baseball where you, you've done all this fall prep, figured things out, had your fall world series, whatever it is. And now it's like, okay, guys, go home for three weeks. And then we're going to come back in January, pick it up again. As, as a coach in this, in this break period, how much like mental gymnastics are you doing running through what's the rotation going to look like? What are the lineups going to look like? Like how much, how much competition is there really in a coach's mind from January to opening day? Yeah, I think it just depends on the team you have. I think, you know, for us this year, uh, I mean, I'll go back and say this in college baseball. I mean, you know, the coaching staff, we obviously have a support staff, but we're kind of, you know, we play the role of front office, right? We play the role of coaches on field. We play, you know, the the ownership general manager side. And, And so I think there's definitely plenty of conversations we have about how do we position our roster for success? And and that's always evolving, but we don't have a trade deadline or, or free agency, even though the portal is kind of shaping out to be a little bit like that. Um, but this time of year, for sure. I mean, you know, we look at, uh, we've spoken a lot to our guys too, about when they want to be in professional baseball, you know, these six weeks they have, um, you know, a lot of times are like, you know, any minor leaguer, big league guy kind of going up into spring camp that, you know, I remember there was days where you have three or four workouts, you could get there early, like, you know, usually would happen at the complex, but once official spring training happens, you're playing three or four days in. So, you know, you don't have time for 15, 20 at bat, especially for the younger guys trying to make a team. Um, so I think it's super important. I think that, 
you know, a lot of it, yeah, the accountability is on us to get our players ready to make sure that they have the throwing programs that are ramping them up properly. Um, you know, and just kind of pinpointing one thing, because if there's one thing about college guys, just like pro guys, right, the offseason hits, whether you had a good year, you want to have a better year. If you didn't have a good year, then you're going to change your swing, right? Like, so I think that's the thing we always try to tell them is, hey, you know, little little adjustments are fine. Let's try to not make wholesale changes back at home, uh, you know, when you're just hitting off a tee or doing underhand flips, kind of experimenting with some new load that you're going to think that, you know, two days in, you're going to hit 95, right? So I think that's that's the beauty of what we're dealing with, but it's about, you know, at Tech, we've had a great tradition of putting guys into the big leagues and a lot of that comes down to ownership that those guys take. So we kind of tell them this is a little bit, a little bit like that. The guys that handle their business come in and usually win jobs. And the guys that don't, you know, are going to really have to try to, you know, knock somebody out once the season starts. There is nothing more baseball player than that off season adjustment that you think is going to turn you from bullpen guy to Jacob DeGrom. Just a, it, there's always that one thing you find, but let's, yeah. let's go back to you coming up in baseball. When did you first realize you had a future at the next level that being, being Florida state? Yeah, I think, uh, man, it's a great question. I mean, I think I, I definitely, you know, can thank my parents for surrounding me with a lot of good mentors, good coaches. Um, you know, on the baseball side, my dad did a lot of the coaching, um, but wasn't always like the coach of my team, right? It was the backyard sessions. I think that it was all about, you know, keeping things where they needed to be, you know, enjoying the game, uh, trying not to just to love baseball because I was good at it, right? To to love it because uh, and work hard at it because I truly felt like that was one of the places I loved to be was in the batter's box or out on defense. So I think kind of having that work ethic instilled at a young age was huge. And you know, you go and play on travel teams, your high school team was surrounded with D1 commits and whatnot. So I think that was a big step where you start looking at, okay, I'm starting to get hits off guys that, you know, get drafted in the first round out of high school as a sophomore, um, you know, things like that happen. Um, so I think that that was a big part of it as well was looking, okay, once you start to see that you can hang with guys at a younger age, um, you know, it was something that I think was huge for me as I went into the college game as well you know, when you're a freshman in college and you can, you know, start to make an impact, not just kind of hang on. Um, I think that you start to say, Hey, I think I can do this. And as a four sport athlete in high school, I had never specialized. So I thought that was the cool part is first year in fall ball, baseball, you know, we'll probably practice 22, 23 in the fall. Uh, a lot of the guys are starting to drag because they've kind of done all this before. And I remember the band playing uh, in the practice field behind us, uh, distinctly, it was like 90 something degrees. And I'm like, looked around, I was like, I'm in love with the process of just playing baseball as the only sport I'm playing. So I think that was big as well. You recruit kids now. Is there and and specialization is a huge thing. Now you see kids specializing, you know, I have a nine-year-old, I see his compatriots. There are kids who are specializing at nine years old. What benefit did you see in, in playing for sports? And then now I'd imagine a lot of the kids that you're recruiting have specialized, but do you see those benefits in the kids who are, are playing basketball in the winter or playing football in the fall? Yeah, I think, you know, the thing I, I like to talk about all the time too, is like, whether it's from an injury prevention standpoint, you know, playing more sports actually can be better for you. I think that's something like, you know, people a lot of times have had to debunk that myth that, you know, you're going to get certain injuries the more you play. It's like, well, if you're playing different sports, sometimes it can be better than playing one sport. And, you know, just the way your body moves in space, um, you know, I, I I definitely feel like there was things that, you know, dribbling a basketball with my left hand, learning how to go left, you know, was just as much, uh, you know, catching a ball as a receiver, 
um, transitioning from playing infield to outfield, like things like that stuck with me. I remember Mike Martin talking about how uh, the first time we had a conversation about playing the outfield, he, you know, he kind of brought up, you were a great receiver in high school, just go catch the ball. Like you used to catch it in football. And, you know, there wasn't a super technical way to learn how to play the outfield. So I think that was something too, that by playing multiple sports, you know, you just get used to solving a lot of different problems. Um, so I think that's the the cool part is you, you know, something you take from the football field, you may not even know it. I mean, a lot of people looked at my jailbreak finish at times uh, and kind of goes back to my tennis days of like hitting a backhand. So, you know, using, you know, nowadays I know all the terms of front knee flexion and all that stuff, but really I was just able to kind of ride out my, my front side um, to hit an off speed pitch. And I feel like a lot of that was from, you know, the tennis that I had played. You mentioned the great Mike Martin, longtime Florida State head coach. For some context for the listeners, both your parents are alums. Your dad played at Florida State, played baseball at Florida State. How much selling did Mike Martin actually have to do to get you to uh, Tallahassee? It, it's interesting. I think uh, the first time you know I got a call from him was on like that, whatever it was, July 1st, whatever it was. And I was in the back of a van coming back from a travel ball tournament. And I thought, uh, you know, had some some big schools call and you know, your travel buddies are leaning back, like asking you who, you know, who's calling and, and it, the service wasn't good. And I remember kind of like, I thought it was Georgia state. And so I kind of like mouth like Georgia state and everybody's like, Oh, you know, turn around, forget about it. And then, you know, 11 starts talking about, you know, with yo daddy, I coach it. And I, all of a sudden I like perk up and I look at the guys. I'm like, no, it like, like, you know, Florida state, it's Florida state. So, you know, it was an interesting recruitment. My dad kind of took himself out of it, uh, told 11, Hey, you know, recruit him if you want him. And, and really, you know, it was a lot of schools was fortunate to um, get recruited by, and I really left it wide open. You know, I went to camp at Vanderbilt and, you know, Backage was a recruiting coordinator. Corbin was obviously still there and, and, you know, how it was cool to see they hadn't even fully gotten over the hump to be who they are, but you could tell it was coming. David Price and Pedro Alvarez were both on campus, you know, so schools like that, I think, um, the, the calls from Florida state magically kind of, you know, ramped up when some of those other schools came calling. Um, but ultimately for me, it was the same thing, you know, my junior year too. And you look at a five, eight, 10 year old kid, like you mentioned your son's age, they do have dreams. And one of mine was always to make a huge impact at Florida state. And so, you know, I think wanting to not just play there, but leave a legacy behind, um, and, and kind of be part of something special was always something that, from a young age, you know, my parents never force fed, you know, Florida state fandom uh, on me, but I think it was something that I always loved uh, everything about it. And so when it came time, I could not see myself passing up that opportunity. And, and, you know, like I mentioned earlier, that was part of the reason of turning down a great pro opportunity, my junior year to go back and kind of felt like I had some unfinished business uh, in Tallahassee and uh, you know, left it uh, better than I found it. Sometimes the, the phrase student athlete gets mocked a little bit like, you know, shout out Cardale Jones, the we ain't here to play school, uh, that sort of thing. You were a guy who clearly took your studies very seriously in, in college. Uh, if you look at your, your Florida state bio, um, you know, multiple trips to the Dean's list, the president's list, academic, all ACC golden torch award for highest GPA on, uh, on the team. As you're evaluating your college decision, how much are you, you're, you're obviously a baseball player in demand. Dream is to play high level baseball, play in the big leagues. 
how much at that point at 17, 18 did academics matter? And especially now you're recruiting for one of the more elite academic institutions in the, in the country. Uh, pretty known in your, you know, you mentioned you visit a school like Vanderbilt, very hard school to get into. How much did you seriously weigh the academics versus the baseball side of things? Yeah. I, you know, you tell people actions speak louder than words, right? I actually took an official visit to Yale as well. Um, had a good relationship with the coaching staff up there. And, and so I always, did you take that trip in? So it's, it's funny. I think they, you know, the coaches Sermley and Stuper, they obviously got me up there early enough. Um, it was like early October um, and fit, finished the next week at the Florida State Miami game, you know, in front of 86,000 people. Uh, and I just felt like that the visit was awesome. But yeah, there was definitely a piece of me, you know, with New Haven at 515, you know, they played 18 inning game, I think it was, or 14 innings against Quinnipiac. And I remember sitting in the stands being like, all right, here we go. Right. Uh, buckle up for the winter time. Um, but no, the academic piece was huge. I mean, that's why I think tech has been a great fit, you know, working for coach hall. Um, you know, it's, it's incredible kind of learning from him every day, uh, surrounded by a really great staff. Um, you know, that's consistently between coach Burrell, uh, you know, Q our player development guy, Nick Askew, Zeke Pinkham, uh, you know, consistently are around guys pushing us to be our best. Uh, and so I think the, you know, development's happening, but going back to academics, I mean, it's all about being competitive. And that's where now, you know, for me, it was whatever I was doing almost to a fault was just competitive. So I could never see myself leaving something uh, in the classroom on the table. Um, going back my senior year, I'd already gotten my finance degree, but decided to pick up some real estate um, as well, instead of just kind of taking a year off. I even looked at getting an MBA and decided that, you know, I do need to kind of pump the brakes instead of taking 18 hours a semester but I think it's all about just kind of being a good steward. If you're, we tell our guys all the time, if you're a three, five GPA, then make a three, five. If you're a three Oh guy, then, you know, go grind it out and, uh, you know, just do what's important. I think when you recruit kids, like you mentioned, big part of our business and with the transfer portal, it's easier to leave a place when things get hard. We have to establish the right type of kid and the makeup is, you know, it sounds cliche, but it's so important of someone that has that grit determination to kind of stick with things uh, when they get hard, uh, not back down from a challenge. I think that's what it's all coaches. I mean, we're all looking for. And, you know, as guys, you know, talking about the the pro aspirations on this podcast and the journey, there's going to be a day where you're an A ball and you're hitting below 250 and you got 26 games in a row in July or August. And you got to kind of decide once again, like I mentioned, how competitive am I? There's no one in my corner. You know, sometimes it may feel like that. So you got to find the guys that are in it for the right reasons and they're going to take pride in whatever they have, uh, you know, set in front of them. You head to campus. The I'm always interested in the first fall in college baseball. That's a big one out of, out of mom and dad's house, just having to grow as a person. That first fall is a difficult adjustment for any college kid, whether you're playing sports or not with sports, especially getting to a program like FSU that, you know, it seems like every year has, has some all Americans or some first round draft picks, obviously like a Buster Posey, you, you get to campus. What is, what is the fall, the James Ramsey survival guide to that first freshman fall, both back then. And then what, what you're preaching now, this, this adjustment period, because it is, it is huge. Again, guys get swallowed up every year. There are guys who transfer out at semester every single year in every single college baseball program. Yeah, it's funny. I think you have to learn that you've 
you know, no matter how good a player you were or coach or how good you think you are that, you know, I, I feel like I end up telling the story to every single team I'm around in any capacity is that there's going to be days your freshman fall. And, and you could equate this to your first year in, in spring training as well, where you're like, you know what, I'm going to be a dude. I'm going to be all conference. I'm going to, you know, be a high draft pick. And, and, you know, you're, I'm going to play in the big leagues for 10 years, might be a hundred million dollar player. And then you're going to have days where, you know, you can't get a bunt down. Uh, you, you get doubled off uh, first base. Um, you, you know, lose a ball in the sun. Uh, and, and then there's days where you go, I'm, I'm going to get released. I'm not going to make it. Um, I'm going to get cut. I'm going to be, you know, riding the bench for, for three or four years in college. And, I think we all have those moments. I think the survival guide is telling them, quote, Jamie Shoup, uh, one of my former coaches at Florida State talked about was, you know, bumps and bruises, no scars, right? You just, if you can get through with making minor adjustments and, and you know, failing a little bit, uh, and, and then at the end of the day, you can come back and say, I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to keep it going, but I'm, I'm never going to lose my cool. I'm never going to doubt really that I can do it. Uh, it's just a process of, when it's going to happen, not if it's going to happen. So I tell our players all the time, Hey, you're going to have bad days. And if you, uh, you know, if you can't learn to flush those and realize it's not a indicator of kind of who you are as a player. And then also I tell them all the time too, you have to cling to whatever positives you can find. If you have, you know, terrible BP, uh, you're 0 for 3 in a, a scrimmage, but you end up keeping a double play in order in the outfield or you, you know, make a diving play. You keep a ball in the infield that doesn't let a runner from second score. You need to be walking away saying, I helped our team win in some capacity. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing about that survival is, you know, and I, I am big on, you know, I call them dig me videos, highlight videos for hitters and drawing inspiration from, you know, the good times. Because no matter what level you're at, yeah, the speed of the game increases, the consistency of guys' ability to land a breaking ball against you at the plate or catchers calling a better game, um, you know, not just calling a pitch just just for, you know, to call a pitch. All those things do happen the higher you go and the higher you play. Um, but if you can't draw back to the moments of being 12 years old and just finding a way to get a hit in a situation, um, no matter how, you know, we have to like the little butt out hand slap swing, whatever to win a game, or, you know, I think that's kind of the things you have to draw from is it's still the same game that you've had a lot of success playing. You've been, you're back three years at Florida state, your lineup mainstay. You don't really leave the lineup that freshman year, you played 45 games at really only nine starts, more of a platoon guy, defensive replacement, pinch hitting, things like that. Is there, is there value they're obviously just the experience, just going through that first year of college baseball. There's there's natural experience that, that adds value. But is there value that you can gain from being more of a bench guy than be that you can't from being a mainstay? Like is there something tangible that you can put your put your finger on that you maybe gained in that year that you, you wouldn't have gained had you just started all four years? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it was uh that forced me to even become more versatile defensively. I don't think you know, I had a chance to handle the bat pretty well as a freshman. And, and like you mentioned, there was, you know, all Americans, two of them in the outfield, I think three of them in the infield uh, and everybody else had played. There were no freshmen that, that started that year. Um, so in a lot of ways, it was a tough lineup to crack. Had just gone to Omaha the year before. However, um, you know, nothing's as valuable as playing. You know, I really truly think that. Um, but there was definitely plenty of times that, when you mentioned, you know, kind of was a Swiss army knife that first year. So it was 
had, you know, I would go in and pinch run on the base paths. So, so I took a lot of pride in, I've always been a good base runner, but wouldn't, you know, I've always played every game. So to your point, I think for me, if I was an everyday player, you know, I, maybe I don't polish uh, as early certain parts of my game. It'd be like after the freshman season, you take your lumps, you decide, Hey, I got to get better on the base paths or I got to get better, you know, whether it's hitting left-handed pitching, whatever it is. Um, I think those were valuable insights for me. And then, you know, once again, just, it pushed me to the outfield, which is probably where my highest ceiling was all along. Um, you know, who, who knew what that would look like to end up being a center fielder and, you know, I think that I was not a, you know, six, three runner until, uh, you know, we ran one on the track. My, I think it was my sophomore junior fall. And I realized, man, I, I can run now. Um, I probably went into college as a six, seven, six, eight guy. Um, so definitely, I think that, you know, just like these franchise quarterbacks, the ones that get thrust into action, they can, they can handle it. That's fine. They're going to grow, but sometimes learning behind somebody uh, that saying, man, I really like the way this guy goes about you know, film review or, you know, baseball would be how, to, how does he handle his at bats against, you know, like I mentioned, two strike approach, left-handed versus right-handed pitching. I think the more you can learn from guys on how they figure things out, uh, the, you know, the better it can be when you're finally going in there the first time yourself. With that learning and getting better. Um, and I'm per a, a BA scouting report. You, you didn't play summer ball after your freshman or sophomore year. Is that correct? So I played in, uh, my freshman year in Alaska, I had a really okay. good summer. Um, that that shaped things then did not my sophomore year, was supposed to go to the cape as a temp uh went to omaha a couple things happened it's a longer story but you know that summer was huge for me as well uh you know i could i've gone and played absolutely it would have been great for me i'm sure for me it was about once again just redefining myself physically uh and then you know talked about hey you know you hit four hole in this omaha lineup have a bunch of rbis but I didn't think that I had hit my ceiling uh, from the hit tool or the power tool. And so I really didn't want to just uh, my sophomore year, you know, hit plenty of homers, but I'm like, man, I, I want to hit 350 with 15. I don't want to hit, you know, 280 with 12. Right. So I, I think that was part of that, that summer and taking off. What work went into that summer then? Cause like watching your highlights, you kind of got a, like a lower open crouch, when you say I want to, you know, I want to hit 350, which you, you did, you hit more than you hit higher than 350. Does that, when you're putting in that work and not, not putting it into play in games, if you're not going to, to summer ball and working on that, what does that work look like? Is that, was that mechanical tweaks? Was it, uh, you know, working on pitch selection or things like that? Like, how did you, what was the plan you put into play there? Yeah, always had controlled the zone really well. Felt like I had a good eye. I think that, you know, kind of the crouch, you know, you give Mike Martin senior and junior credit for, you know, they would would put that on guys and had a lot of success, you know, at just really simplifying things, you know. Um, I think that that next transition was more, okay, if I am crouched and, you know, I am kind of swinging the gate closed a little bit there, um, you know, I think it's, picking your spots. It's learning, you know, really and truly knowing when you're an offensive count, knowing that guys were, you know, cross counting me more, uh, you know, right on left, it was a one, one change up, right. Or two Oh, you know, they're going to nibble or they're going to attack in hard kind of whatever those things were. I do think that there's times where, you know, I, I kind of like sometimes the racetrack analogy versus the garage. And sometimes you got to go in there and tweak some stuff. I think you got to be careful too of not living too much in the garage. You got to take that thing out on the racetrack. Um, but I definitely think that, 
you know, we discuss as a staff all the time, what does it look like to be on the track, but not be challenging yourself enough where, you know, every car is, is ramped up to the max uh, velocity and that they can go. So, um, you know, that was big for me though, because I feel like, yeah, there's times where you need the no judgment on, you don't need to worry about some of those factors. Um, for me though, it was more about, you know, getting stronger. Uh, you know, I don't, we didn't have bat sensors or anything, but I definitely think that, you know, that coming off playing a full season, taking that time allowed me to go from junior year to the Cape senior year, straight into signing. I think I played like 130, some 140 games between college and my first pro season. Um, and definitely faded towards the end of that year, but it was great because I felt like it allowed me then to know what it's like to play a full season, even before I had done it technically before in pro ball. During your time at Florida state, you, you picked up a lot of comparisons to Tim Tebow. Um, you know, your, your religion is a guiding force in your life. You're not shy about that, but also just leadership purposes. That's kind of, you know, everyone remembers the, the speech after you know, the speech he had after that. I can't remember which loss it was, but the, you know, that thing. You you took leadership into as a priority. It's something you got lauded for by scouts. Um, you know, having that having that sort of intangible. You were a captain on that Florida State team. Um, you've played and coached on plenty of teams and seen all different types of leadership. There's you know there's the guys who are very vocal. There's the guys who are quiet and just get their work in and, and model. There are guys who say they lead and don't actually lead. There are guys who talk the talk, don't want the walk. Um, what what did you expect of yourself as a leader? Like, is that something you consciously thought about of, I want to be a leader and I, I need to do these things. And then your leaders at Georgia Tech, are there certain things when you have a Kevin Parade or someone like that, that, that is in a position where people are going to look to them naturally? What do you expect of leadership? Like, what is leadership to you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think leadership, you know, it is something that obviously that's huge. It's something that you know, I do think there's a little bit of nature involved and a little bit of nurture. I think that, you know, some guys uh, may be, you know, born or, you know, raised a little more with leadership qualities. I think that the point I think I'd make is leadership is, uh, you know, a guy's a leader when initially it's guys gravitating towards that person instead of someone stepping out into the forefront. I think that's one thing that you know, we all lose when we think about leaders, we're initially drawn to the guy, right? And I think we look at them when they're a leader, instead of looking at the process. A lot of times you don't see a lot of success just thrusting a free agent, right, into a spotlight of leadership, or, um, you know, I think someone just deciding, you know, this is my time. I think that, you know, great leaders are also born from uh, having mentors that kind of pass the torch to them. Like I mentioned, I think, uh, you know, leadership can take all shapes and forms. I think for me, it was always have been an encourager and a big energy guy just by, by trade. Um, it kind of goes back to that competitive thing. I want to win so badly in that freshman year, you know, I probably was the guy that was bugging, uh, you know, a, a bullpen guy gets one out and, you know, I wasn't, you know, nowadays they've gotten a little out of control with guys are on the foul lines on both sides every, since the second inning on in college games. But you know, jokes aside, like I was always about winning. And so I think guys kind of knew that fed off that you're trying to help guys in the weight room and push guys, you know, whatever your God given ability is, you need to give it every single day. And so I think as I got more and more of a chance to, to be a leader, you know, I think it's, you have to practice leadership. You have to check yourself too, and you need to back it up and you need to walk it. Um, if you're going to go out there and talk it. And I think that 
I always have just felt like as a player, as a coach, for me personally, you have to be yourself too, as a leader. Like you can't ask a certain guy to lead uh, in, in a different way than they're comfortable. Uh, I think, you know, if the guy's a quiet leader, yeah, he can learn some ways to get through to people. You know, Buster was uh, just had left the year before I got there and he was definitely, um, you know, had a, had a really similar uh, impact on the program as a leader. Um, Obviously as a player, you know, he was unbelievable, but his way was, you know, very seldom would he speak up when he did his words carried serious weight. And mine was more, you know, it's funny looking back at some videos, 11, almost like I'd be running some of the post-game meeting, handing out awards and 11's like riding side saddle, doing post-game speech. And, um, you know, so I think that's all the fun of it is when the teams are best uh, when the players are driving the culture and the, the coaches can sit back and go, Hey man, we got our guys from a performing standpoint, but we also have our guys from a leadership standpoint. Um, so I think that you can see that across the board in college baseball is, you know, it's awesome because you get to see that night in and night out of guys stepping in every game kind of feels like a game seven. Um, but no, absolutely. I mean, the best teams are going to have that player driven leadership and we just try to see, Hey, how can we cultivate it? And when we do have a special leader, I think that's the thing about leadership too, is you can lose it really fast. Like I think the well can get poisoned when you have someone that's not a great leader. Um, and it's also really hard when a guy leaves a leadership position, if he hasn't done a good job to groom the guys behind him. Um, you know, so I think that's, that's a big part of it. If you looked and studied, we can do all the analytics and measurements on teams that go to the playoffs or the world series or Omaha, whatever it is, they are going to have a pretty consistent, uh, you know, really solid culture. So there is that solid culture and you want players to, to build that culture. And I, and I agree that the, the teams I had the most fun playing on in college were teams with, with great player led culture, a lot of leaders like that. But in college, the only consistency is is usually the guy up top, usually usually the staff who has to find a way to cultivate that. What did what about Mike Martin, who did it for so long and had success in multiple decades, brought brought teams to Omaha in I think three or four different decades, which is bonkers. What about the guy up top allowed you to to cultivate that culture or kept in that? Like, what did you pull from a guy like that? Yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to people ask all the time about 11 or same thing with, with, you know, Danny Hall, it's like, man, these guys are the longevity factor is incredible because, you know, the number of games they win every year. I mean, I think 11 always did a really good job of, you know, once again, probably overly communicating, right? Like you knew exactly how he felt, when he felt it, why he felt that way, and then what we needed to do to whether it was continue to play well or turn things around and play better. Um, and, and, and so I think that, you know, that was one thing for me that he obviously changed from when he was first head coach, you know, in 1970s and then his final, you know, coaching season in 2019. I also think that's something that's huge. I mean, you think about Nick Saban to the evolution of him, not just from an X's and O's, but from a, how you communicate with players. Um, and so I think that's the, that's the thing about 11 is he, he definitely adapted, but he, everyone always knew kind of what he was about and what he wanted to do. Um, and, and players kind of believed in that. And I think that, you know, uh, coach Hall is another one that, you know, you're around all these legendary coaches I've been fortunate to be around is, you know, coach Hall always, you know, he has your back and, uh, he lets you play your game. And I think that, you know, 
both of those titans of college baseball, they might have different ways that they go about it. Um, but I do think at the end of the day, the, the consistency is your players know that the coach cares about them and not just because they're the three hole guy or just because they signed a hundred million dollar contract later on. Um, it's, it's a true feel that on the day to day, um, they love what they do and they love that you as the player are part of their organization. So 2011, after your junior season, you've, you know, you've made those improvements you're talking about. BA has you as a third team all American by then in your career, you've been to Omaha, you guys, you know, you go as a sophomore, um, the, the twins take you in the 22nd round. It's back before, you know, before spending caps, they can, they can pay your way. You know, they can pay you to come. It's not as though they're, you're stuck at that 125 and then, you know, anything, anything counts as a tax. How did you evaluate that decision? You kind of hinted at it a little bit, kind of taking that into account, but was, you know, you, you'd accomplished a ton. What, what drew you back to Florida state and how serious did those, did those discussions get? Cause you had the August 15th signing deadline at that point where they could, you know, they could chat you up all summer. Yeah. 2011. So we lose, uh, to a loaded Texas A&M team in 2011 where Michael Waka, you know, we went 23 to nine and Michael Waka's looming to pitch the third game of a super regional. So, you know, stripling, it was Stilson, it was Naquin, uh, you know, they had a, had a great team. And I remember Jake file who now is the Falcons head trainer was our baseball trainer. And I'm crying, you know, like a little baby in the locker room. And, uh, you know, he kind of comes up, we had a conversation of, you don't have to leave. And Sean Gilmartin, who was a first rounder that year is one of my best friends to this day. You know, we came in as roommates, had a lot of goals, checked off a lot of them, uh, together, uh, and individually. And, you know, this was back in the draft and follow days. So end up, deciding, you know, I don't have to make this decision yet. Go up and play for Pickler, play for pick up in YD, uh, around a lot of great players. Um, you know, there's too many to name, but Mark Appel was a guy that, you know, he and I, um, Piscotti as well, Stephen Piscotti, you know, ended up being a Cardinals farmhand together, fall league roommates. Um, but, you know, from a spiritual perspective, from a baseball perspective to, to be surrounded by, you know, all these first rounders, I think we had like seven, maybe first rounders on that team, but just the guys were incredible and baseball wasn't everything that they did. So Jake Lamb and Mason Katz from LSU, uh, a couple of my other roommates spending time with those guys. And then Billy Corrigan was the, uh, you know, scout with the twins that kept banging down my door when it was, Hey, you know, started getting calls from teams in the, you know, the end of night one of the draft about the next day. And, so really I knew, you know, between talking with family advisors and stuff, you don't have to go, but you don't want to be the guy that's getting uh, popped in the fifth round with those rules, even how they were back then and not signing. So basically once the third, fourth round passed, there was like, my phone was like dying, plugging it back in, ending one call to go to the next, just keep saying no, 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 no. And like I said, Billy Corrigan called and was like, Hey, kind of like enough, enough. I believe in you as a player. I'm going to get my up, up and ups, you know, Darren Johnson, DJ up, up top was like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to get this guy signed. So go up, have a great summer. Um, you know, talking to coaches at Florida state, talking with, uh, you know, the, the twins and, and it got to a point where, you know, hit a home run at Fenway park in the all-star game, uh, have, have, you know, win the MVP of that game, go on and all, you know, all the scouting directors, everybody's there. And, 
uh, you know, the way the twins kind of tell the stories, everybody's kind of looking back at them, like with doing the money sign, you know, like, Hey man, you're gonna have to pay this guy even more. So it went down to where I think it was August 12th or 13th, something like that. Uh, I call and say, Hey, I'm going to go back to Florida state. And I had not told Florida state this yet. And, you know, the twins brass was like, we're not accepting that you need to sleep on this decision. So I'm like, Oh man, like had all those conversations, uh, had the whole, you know, role playing of, Hey, you're, you're giving back this money. It's not even, you know, cause I was like, Oh, well I'll turn it down and, you know, talk to my brother. Like, no, like you're giving this money back. I'm like, man, you know, that did that's you really- have a number and there is the awareness that except in very certain circumstances, seniors get, get ripped off. <laughs> yeah, no, I think term. that, I think that that's kind of where the number thing as a finance guy, you would think I would have like a teed up number. I never really did. I mean, obviously, you know, you float at that time, um, you know, I think half a million dollars would have gotten you like second round money. I think the twins supplemental pick was like slotted around just above five. And so when it came down to, Hey, we're the twins, like we're, we're basically offering you more than anyone except our first round pick. And we're, we're not letting you say no, you know? So I think that was, that was tough. Um, but it also made me grow a lot. And, you know, we talked earlier about advising players through the draft process. I've had one of the worst draft days ever, uh, and I've had one of the best ones ever. And I think that learning to get lost in what I was doing my senior year and what obviously on the field, what I was trying to do an impact. And then obviously what I was trying to do off the field. Um, I think those things, if you can, as a player realize first off, I mean, I remember, you know, mentioning a Mark Appel earlier that uh, Mark calls me when I'm in St. Louis signing the next year and I'm the 23rd pick. I think he was the sixth pick. So he's already a first rounder himself. And he goes, Hey, remember when we talked about your decision to go back? It's like, I think I'm, I'm going to go back for the same reason. I'm like, Mark, I remember looking at, you know, overlooking, you know, Bush stadium. I'm like, Mark, you're a first rounder, dude. Like I had, you know, I was not, if I would have gone in the first round, I would have signed the year before. And he's like, yeah, but so, you know, kind of funny story of, you know, him going through this process, calling me like, man, you know, meanwhile, he's 17 picks ahead of me. And I'm like, man, let's, let's trade. If you're not going to sign, I'll, you know, I'll bump up to six, uh, fall on the sword for you. But no, I think there was so much involved in that. Um, the twins obviously did a great job of impressing the family organization on me to where, the first time I got to choose where I was going as a free agent, um, you know, elected to sign on with the twins. And I felt like that was because I felt like it was a great place for me in, you know, 2017, 2018. Uh, but I also felt like there was a cool part of me that felt like, Hey, um, and didn't know it was the last organization I would play with before I, you know, decided to get into coaching, but it was like, Hey, what a cool chance to go play with an organization that I had so much respect for, um, and, and I remember talking to Billy Corrigan, um, the next year and he's like, James, you're doing exactly what I, what I said you could do. You know, we, we kind of had a good time with that. And he goes, there's some kid in it in, in Georgia, you know, last name Buxton. He's like, I think we have a chance at him. So we're probably not going to draft you. Even if you get to pick number, I think it was 32, 33, whatever it was at the time. And so super happy for Byron. I mean, you know, getting to play a couple games beside him, um, you know, in spring training settings and, and be a fan of his. And I think that's been the cool part is, um, you know, going through as a college player when he was getting recruited, kind of getting to know him a little bit. 
Um, so it was really cool. It worked out great. You know, got to play, uh, you know, for the Cardinals and, and it felt like the draft, you know, couldn't have gone better my senior year and was in a great spot. And then, you know, jump around between Cleveland, LA, Seattle, Minnesota, you know, you just go all these places and get surrounded by a lot more great players. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It obviously worked out. It could have not worked out. When you evaluate your senior year, I mean, you have this great senior year, this dream senior year at Florida State. You're one of, you know, I think probably aside from Mark Appel, probably the highest paid senior of the last 10 years. With that with that being said, if you go back, because when you say you're having this conversation with some with one of your players at Georgia Tech or whoever, there's a there's a scenario where you go back and you hit 340 and you have a pretty good year and you, maybe you guys you guys do make it to Omaha but you sign you're a senior sign in the third round you sign under slot for like seventy five thousand dollars. Yep. When you evaluate all that 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 year of college you get you get four years you get three to four years and that is it there's no more going back you know unless you know except as an adult there's only that that small bit of college. Is, is it worth it? If you had signed for $75,000, it is easy to say in hindsight, but was that senior year worth it had things not gone your way? Yeah, I definitely, as a player, had crazy unwavering belief in myself. And I think that's something that, you know, is a valuable trait to pass on as a coach, right? If you're a player, um, I tell guys this all the time, like if you if you think you're this good and you actually are this good, you'll never get to your peak. If you are only this good and you think you're better than you are, there's actually a chance you can break through that ceiling. Right. And if you only think you're as good as you are, once again, you're never going to probably uh, overachieve and overachieving honestly is a, is a great compliment to get as a player. Uh, if you can do a lot of things that maybe even some people thought you couldn't do. So I would say I had this unwavering belief and I had a discipline about me that said, Hey, I, I, I don't just want this, but I do think I can do what it takes to get there. And I think that's the difference of a lot of players is who doesn't want to become a first round pick, who doesn't want to become, you know, conference player of the year, national player of the year, uh, academic player of the year, um, and, and low senior class, you know, service community service award winner all in the same year. Like, yeah, those things sound great, but how you spend every waking moment of that final year um, you know, I talk about, you know, the fate side, but it was business. It was a business decision that I had to put in the time, put in the effort and back it up and stay healthy. And so I think that, you know, there was definitely things I was fortunate, like I said, to stay healthy. And I, I was in a lineup of, of a lot of guys that had a similar mindset of Sherman Johnston and Devin Travis, and, you know, the names go on and on, but guys that also said, I want to leave this year and, and kind of have that mindset. So crazy enough playing, Stanford with Piscotti and Appel and AJ Venegas and all those guys the next year. And that's who we have to beat to go to Omaha. Some of my, you know, newer best friends in the game. Um, so that was kind of crazy, but no, I think as a coach now, the decision sign to sign to not to sign selfishly, I, I want our coaching staff wants our players to get their full value. And that does mean money. That does mean rounds. That does mean status, all of that. However, 
me personally, when I'm advising guys and in my heart of hearts, like it's, it's crazy to think this, but I think more times I'm not trying to sell my own story because I know what it took to actually be that guy the next year. Um, so, so many times too, I think if a guy does finish up all conference, all American team does very well, um, like this past year, where we had a lot of guys, you know, super devastated about pushing Tennessee to the brink and in, in the regionals and, and ultimately coming up short, but, you know, we have six guys drafted in the top 10 rounds and how can you tell any of those guys as a top 10 round draft pick that, you know, they need to go back and, and do it again and prove themselves and, and all that I think as a coach, it's definitely impressed on me that. I haven't advised a bunch of guys. There'll be someone I'm sure, whether it's a high school player coming up this year in the draft um, or another high school or college guy coming up here soon that I'll, I'll sit down and feel like there are some parallels to be drawn. Um, I think the cool part is just when you've turned down money, you can speak to turning down money. If you've never had that chance or, you know, you took the money, then you can't, in my opinion, speak, you know, empathy versus sympathy, you know, towards someone uh, doing it. And also when you've been in the situation, be super fortunate to be, uh, be that player, put together one of those storybook years. Um, it just allows you to, it, it, it hangs with you and you're trying to, you know, drop a vision for another team to have a chip on their shoulder. I mean, we were ranked 21st, I think in the country and then spent time, a lot of time at number one that year, my senior year with all freshman rotation of mm. Weaver, Lee Brandt, Compton, um, you know, developing young arms. And, and so I think that was, we had so much fun as a team that year. I know that I got a lot of accolades and stuff, but the bus rides, you wouldn't have known that the hotel rooms, the post-game celebrations, it was, it didn't matter who was, you know, getting the big hit or whatever. We just loved playing together. And that's those memories that have kept me in the college game now, just because it's, it's such a pure form. You mentioned all those accolades. You you had a great junior season. You had a better senior season. It wasn't like you went from a 300 hitter to a 400 hitter. You just improved everything slightly. You mentioned the uh, the racetrack or garage kind of analogy of player development earlier. I like talking about the video game analogy. You know, you play NCAA football, and every year, you know, your freshman to sophomore year, a guy gains eight experience points or whatever it is, and improves in certain categories. If you're doing, if you're putting that in real life where did you see improving? Like where, where did you, did you get better against right-handed pitchers? Did you get better against left-handed pitchers? Did you develop a better batter's eye? Like where are the year to year, year to year improvements that you attribute one having success getting better each year and where, especially that senior year where it it seemed like you unlocked a new gear. No, it's a, I'm going to steal that analogy of the video game. I like that because the experience points, I mean, that is, what player development is right like in pro ball you can go from a ball to high a to double a to triple a so in theory age to league and overall town of a league like you do have to keep proving it on the way up um you know the only analogy is like a player that learns to hit for power their fourth year in the big leagues right it finally clicks pull side power or or maybe opposite field two strike approach whatever that is i think for me Um, the shortest answer would be just learning how to extend the peaks and keep the valleys to a minimum. And my ability to, if a team is not going to pitch to you, then you have to draw a walk. Uh, if a team is going to pitch to you and they're going to give you one pitch, however, there's still a base open, 
and the scoreboard is in a spot where you do need to still draw a walk, I don't need to go just try to go after and take a G hack at that first pitch. So I think that's where the experience points, uh, like you mentioned, I think just knowing if I go into a weekend and I'm, you know, six for seven in the midweek, and then I go one for 12, I, I don't remember if I had a weekend like that. I probably did. Um, but going back to the whole peaks side too, like when you do go off on a weekend series, base hit bunt in the eighth inning, like you're not too good to, to just try to go hit a third home run or whatever it is. You just keep moving it down the line for your team. I think that that's a big part of it is just every year I got better at learning how to say, Hey, you know, even if it was like, I feel like the best hitters can go pitch to pitch, right. Or at bat to at bat. You know, if you're a freshman, you're going week to week or month to month, it seems like. And as a player in pro ball, it felt like that. I remember having a conversation with Mike Schilt in Springfield. I'm in double A my first year. And it's like a lot of people didn't think I should be there that quick, even though I had that much success. It was like a rite of passage, you know, to try to get there. And and Schilte was like, hey, you have a good approach. We've heard all this. But he's like, I promise you, you won't really know what a real approach means for you until you go and you play your first full 140 game season and kept the notebook diligently. I did. I feel like mentally in college, like I was pretty good at, you know, saying, Hey, I faced Stroman this year earlier. Uh, now you're facing guy in the AC tournament or you're facing him from his sophomore year to his junior year. Now he's added a slider. All right. Noted. Right. You know, so I think things like that were big that the more, that you're comfortable as a player knowing that, Hey, the haze in the barn, you've worked, you've done all this stuff, but that when you step in the box and you tap the plate, you also carry that with you, that you're the more experienced player kind of with a leg up before things even start. You have the senior season. What are the the draft conversations like, like how different an experience is that one year later when you're, you're now solidly in top rounds consideration and you also have no backup option. Yeah. I think that uh, I got some of the same questions you've asked tonight about, you know, or as a finance major, explain this financial decision you made, you know, I'm like, Hey, I, you know, I'm kind of, I felt like a lot of times want to be treated as a one of one, right? Like if I have value to your organization, and now at 21, just turning 22 years old, if I can provide value to your organization and, and prospect list and a guy that can be versatile, that runs, hits for power, hits for average, walks more than he strikes out, hits left-handed, like if that's attractive to you, I know a couple of teams, you know, threw out the whole discount word or kind of tried to put those feelers out there. And I was like, listen, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make this a value buy. If you think I'm worth something, then, then pay for it. I think run production you know, wins above replacement. We all do a good job of quantifying what that's worth. And what you mentioned too, you know, playing hard every day and playing every day I mean, played banged up probably too much in the minors, um, but always took pride. And I was going to be in the lineup the next day. And no matter where they wanted to play me, uh, where they wanted to hit me, I was going to be super competitive locked in and until the final out. And I think that you know, you want someone to come in an organization, whether you uh, draft them, trade for them, acquire them or sign them as a free agent and make your clubhouse better. Um, you know, I don't I don't know specifically, you know, how that happened, but I always tried to do that wherever I was, just be a really good steward of whatever that organization was and picked up a lot of hats along the way. And, you know, have a lot of cool stories of just working with some players that were way more talented than me or or also helping along some guys that later on in their careers had a chance to, you know, make it and, and make a really good career for themselves as well. 
That senior year, you guys make another run to Omaha, um, drop the first, which is always tough, make a run of it, lose to Arizona. Cardinals take you 26th overall as a senior. Sign for 1.6, head to the, the Florida State League. The I mean, you'd probably as used to Florida weather as anyone who goes into that league, but the muggy Florida State League in front of few fans, considering your, your previous games had been at Florida State in Omaha. Were you a guy who struggled with the the less intense games in the minor leagues? Is that is that something that ever ever got to you? And that these don't these don't matter as much as a college world series game against Arizona. Yeah, I think we all struggle with it a hundred percent. I mean, you know, the biggest motivators are obviously internal, but everybody, I mean, at least the best competitors love playing in front of thirty thousand people. So, you know, playing in front of you know a big crowd at Florida state or playing on the road, loved embracing and still as a coach, loved playing on the road in front of big crowds. Right. Um, but I think that's the biggest thing that you go into a league like that. I think, like I said, I was by the, by the end of it. I mean, mentally wasn't in a great place. Physically wasn't in a great place. Jeff Albert was my first hitting coach and he and I just talked the other day, which is cool. We stayed in touch, but I'm like, man, I've had so much success and Florida State League hitters, you know, not friendly league for them. Uh, and, and especially I was – I remember little things too, like I was swinging a 34-32. Like probably shouldn't have been swinging that after, you know, playing 130 games. And But you grow and learn from it. And I felt like if I would have gone to straight A ball or, or you know, a level below high A straight out of the draft, you know, I don't know that I'd have been as challenged. And, and that was something that was huge for me – from a growth standpoint, I think I go and hit like 360 or something like that for like less than 10 games before I went up to double A my first year in uh, 13. But I think that it was good, man. Like I needed to be surrounded by, you know, I remember facing Jose Fernandez and Yelich, Ozuna, uh, Mark Canna, all on that same, you know, Marlins team, you know, what, what could have been right with that farm system. But I mean, you look at, playing against teams like that, you know, facing Montero uh, for the St. Lucie Mets. I mean, you know, you just go and you face these guys right out of the gate. And, you know, I I always kind of came at it from a humble side of things, but also like I have no idea who any of these guys are as well. Like you just, I I wasn't reading baseball America, you know, minor league stuff. I'm all involved in the baseball America college side or D one baseball and looking at the, you know, just straight baseball college side of things and immediately being around just freak athletes, freak baseball players, And it was incredible exposure to, you know, a level of game that, you know, maybe wasn't as developed from a team side, but just from player to player, the talent you're around. Um, I remember facing Caminero, uh, you know, he's still like 102 and you're just like, what's going on here? Now everybody throws 102, but I think that experience was awesome too. Cause it just, you know, same thing. I go to double A and, you know, do pretty well that year and and go back the next year. And, you know, that was the futures game year in 14 and and did even better. So I think each time going back to that experience point, you know, we made earlier, anytime I could be somewhere and settle in statistics were off the charts. I didn't do a good job, have never been great at making that transition. I mean, going back to, you know, being a young kid, going to school for the first time, new grade. Um, So I think that was something I had to learn. I definitely got better at, um, but if you go back and look statistically at when get traded first 10 days or designated and and go back and clear waivers, 
Um, and maybe that was part of just, you know, my swing and, and working through things that needed because timing was so big for me when I didn't have a chance to do that four, five, 10, sometimes days off. Um, you know, things didn't go as well, but I definitely think that, you know, the pro journeyman getting thrown right to high out of the draft was a huge compliment for me. And I love the Cardinals had enough faith in me to do it. And they also, you know, they give you that, that $1.6 million bonus. So financially you have the means to treat your body a little bit better, feed yourself better than, um, you know, than say a typical senior sign or, or a guy with, without as much, you know, financial backing behind him. But with the minor league schedule and the travel and the living in random cities, how difficult is that to actually put into place to take care of yourself like that when it is a very vagabond lifestyle? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the MLB and MILB and, and, you know, I'm obviously not in it as much on the day to day. I can tell you what 15 year olds can hit across the country. Right. I can't tell you as much who's got the deepest system right now, just based on nature of the job, but with the union, I mean, I think everything that minor league players, even today, you know, it's crazy thing. It was 10 years ago, but they're, they're entering a better place. Teams are caring way more about nutrition. Um, it's not just the peanut butter and jelly diet anymore. Um, no matter what it is, man, like I remember buying a pool raft, uh, inflatable pool raft in, in, you know, to the Texas league going from Springfield to Corpus Christi and just like your body's your business. And, um, I think there was also a beauty too. To, you know, you mentioned the games where there's no one there, or the 10 a.m., 11 a.m. kids days. You do have to just learn how to get up off the mat and kind of like fake it till you make it. Um, I always felt like the first at bat of a day game, in a day game, you know, used lightly, it's a morning game, right? Like the first at bat of one of those getaway days um, is huge. And if and it, you don't have to get a hit every time, but just once again, some way that you can create value to get that, you know ball rolling in the right direction and gain some momentum off of it. I think those things that you learn in pro ball, like, you know, obviously you learn lessons, you have coaches to kind of help use your guardrails, but to experience that firsthand of how am I going to chunk this season into 50 at bat sample sizes or 10 at bats and whatever works for you. You know, I think that's the big thing too. What works for someone else that's successful, whether it's a swing thought, it's an at bat thought, you, know, you got to find what works for you. And so I think that through all those experiences, you really find out kind of the best version of yourself. Twenty, you mentioned twenty fourteen, going to the futures game. You hit three hundred in in uh, you know in Springfield. You get traded at midseason. Now you're in AAA. That's knocking on the door status. You've played with big leaguers, around big leaguers, especially in that futures game where majority of that game is going to the big leagues and they're going pretty quickly. There's an outfield glut in St. Louis, left-handed outfield glut in in Cleveland where you get traded to for Justin Masterson. How do you how do you keep your head up after consistently not getting the call and say and say why not me? Why am why am I not here? I've put up these good numbers. I've been in the futures game. There are by matter of circumstance, there are guys who are not as good as you who make it to the big leagues every year. Yeah, I think and honestly, you that piece you as a competitor, like never is totally quashed. Right. But I think that you become, I learned this, that the more I could have joy for teammates of mine, right. That as time goes on a guy like Patrick wisdom, who was my first roommate in instructs, like you, I could honestly say that he's the type of guy that would do the same for me. It's like I would trade right now for him to get an opportunity over me just because the guy worked as hard, was an unbelievable teammate, 
you know, sat there and struggled for years and years and got sent down to the complex league and then back to a ball and back down and, and had to go through so much. Um, you know, it's cool to see him now, dad, you know, uh, with his girls and, and just getting to go through the, the journey. Um, but you have guys that you play along, you know, Brock Stassi was another one for me that, you know, play with him, watch his journey. And you're like, dude, like, you get to play with guys like this. Um, ran to Charlie Colberson the other day was, you know, roommate when I was in AAA with the Dodgers. Like you see that those guys getting to make a living doing it um, instead of looking at why not me or I'm better than this other guy that maybe wasn't as great of a clubhouse guy and was super out for himself. And, um, you know, maybe got three days in the big leagues that I think that, you know, obviously, you know, being a big leaguer, not being a big leaguer, whatever that looks like, you know, I think that you're going to have, you know, plenty other to measure you. But I think when you're around other guys that go, you know, as players, it's almost funny, like the respect level, Devin Travis, one of my best friends to this day, you know, he'll be my biggest sales pitch on dude, Ramsey would have done this or done that if any team would have given him the chance. But like, when you consistently have that mutual respect with guys that played in the big leagues or were big league all-stars or guys that will constantly kind of give you that respect. Um, that's what matters the most is that you have a guy like Chris Bryant, you know, you play in the futures game and the next year he's trying to pick you up on the golf cart in a big league spring training game. And, you know, you don't think anything of it, right. You're just like, Hey, that's one of my boys. And, you know, Stroman, another one that we've stayed in touch over the years, like, having that respect of knowing those guys know the type of player you were, I think, you know, allows you to make the transition, you know, out of playing into doing something else. Um, and, and obviously getting to live vicariously through those guys too. Talking about that, your senior year, when you try to try not to get too high, too low, trying to just stay consistent when you're in AAA and you're consistently just knocking on the door, knocking on the door, but whatever, whatever you seem to be doing now doesn't seem to be working. Is there a temptation to, change your game all the time like how do you how do you stay within yourself in, in that regard versus man they're they called up this guy maybe i need to start hitting maybe i need to start selling out for more power maybe i need to start running more maybe you know how, what's what's the strategy around taking your game as a whole and deciding what needs to really change and what you just need to have faith in yeah as a player i mean honestly to a fault i was probably um, I, I talk about the makeup and having like moxie and high IQ. I think it also played into a detriment. Um, I think that I was an analytical guy and the analytical side of the game was becoming more and more reality. And I always like a good example is I remember having a meeting with one of the teams and, and honestly, it was one of the later, a little later in my career, I wasn't as afraid to say, Hey, can we meet and just look at what the game plan is here and why I'm not there early in my career. I was more so trying to listen to anyone or anything once you're, you know, to your point, once you're in AAA from your first full season on, that can wear at you. You spend, I think, parts of like six or seven seasons, I forget what it was, in AAA with all the scouting instead of a lot of times the best thing you can do is be the new girl at school, spend 60 games in AAA. Um, AAA, I mean, is a heck of a level. And I think that, uh, you know, I'm quoting somebody, former GM, that was like 4A players don't exist. It's just guys that do and don't get chances to consistently play at the big league level. And I know that if I had a chance to do that, that I would have had more chances to play up there. Um, you know, so I think that's that's one thing. But early in my career, like I said, and even probably throughout, I was probably too willing to listen, but I had one meeting. It's like, hey, how do I get to the big leagues? Where do I stack up metrically? And they're like, well, if because of your power, 
Um, this was the year before the juice triple a ball. So I missed my mark here, but I had like 20 something warning track flyouts, Right. And they're like, well, if this, this, this happens, and if your swing and miss goes down, like it was something crazy low, like two or 3%, you're now an MLB all-star based on their, you know, inside metrics. And so I'm like, well, all I got to do is bunt. If I just bunt more, I'll swing and miss less. And, you know, like almost like just gaming the results. Um, but I think that's the thing now as a coach that I'm less likely to, insert myself early with a player, especially when you have the fall, right. For development, but I'm more likely to get involved in their psyche, their approach, their game planning, the literal game to game at bat to a bat uh, process of them as a hitter. And then obviously we can make plenty of overhauls in their posture or their, their base or their hands or their, you know, now we can measure all things about vertical bat angles and approach angles and horizontal vertical and, we can dive down those rabbit holes. But I think the biggest thing is for guys to have the most prolonged success, what made me good at Florida state was just being the baddest dude in the world when I was in the batter's box and being a super tough out and just helping my team win. And I do think the minor leagues, uh, the best, you know, time I ever had probably was some of those playoff pushes with teams or winning a triple a, uh, the international league championship with the Columbus Clippers, like with guys like Aguilar and Lindor and, and guys that uh, Urshela, um, when you're chasing something with big leaguers, that's fun, right? Um, but I think that, that at times, then you go into the dog days and your team's 15 games out of the playoffs, that was really tough for me. More than than the, the overall atmosphere, just when your team's not in it and everyone starts looking at the end of the day, their own box score, that would eat me up. And it did, because I kept getting traded around at times. And the only thing that mattered was, what used to matter was the teams I played on went. Now, all that matters is what I'm doing night in and night out. Um, so I think that was definitely a hard transition. Like you mentioned, you go, you know, you go through a couple different organizations. By 2018, you wind up back with the, you know, the first team that drafted you and the Twins. What made, was there a linchpin, like a, a single moment that was like, this is now the time to, to walk away or be done with baseball? Yeah, I mean, one of them was just like Mike Martin kept, you know, bugging me, Colin, checking in. Um I definitely think that, you know, going through the process with uh, front offices through free agency, right? It's it's the old conversation of you went from being 22 and too young to be here, 24, still had 40-man control, and then 26, I don't have big league time. So I knew that that was the, the generic process that was going to go. I think there were several conversations. I mean, one of them had still a good friend of mine, Alex Hassan, um, and was like, he was the one kind of telling me like, you're a big leaguer. Right. But he also was the one telling me getting a week is not going to change that. You're not going to feel any better about yourself when you're 40 years old or whatever. Um, and so I did think that as soon as I felt like my inputs and my outputs weren't lining up, like the amount that I worked, how early I got to the clubhouse, all these things, when the business side overcomes that, that you can't, you can't fight against that regardless of what the production is and the opportunities go down. Then I felt like I had to go try to be world-class elite at something else as well. Um, felt like I had a great career. Uh, I remember walking the the streets of Chattanooga with my wife too, one day after it was either after a day game or something. I'm like, you know, if I hit for the cycle, remember I think I hit two home runs in a game uh, that, that summer and stealing some bases and just like dominating the game and being like, 
I don't know if I can keep replicating that to make myself feel good about things. So I knew that chasing other opportunities with other teams or just playing another season to say that I played X amount of years wasn't as appealing. And so I felt like I could be world-class and a couple other things. And, you know, thankfully between Mike Martin and Danny Hall, they both gave me chances to join their staffs right away into positions that, you know, normal 28 year olds with no coaching experience don't get in those conversations and have an impact. And, you know, still feel that way. Hey, I feel like we've done some really great things, um, but yet still early in the, in the coaching career where, you know, I'm just still trying to learn from a lot of the best to do it and, and a lot more players to try to mentor and, you know, losing, can't lose sight of the fact that, you know, in making that transition, that's what I said I was going to do. And so that's kind of what drives me every day to be the best coach I can be. Do you see yourself in college long-term? Yeah, I do. I think unless something crazy changes, I think that, uh, you know, I, I just love the fact that um, I don't love the super, super early recruiting. I'll be the first to say it just because I don't think it's healthy for any of the stakeholders involved. But if you talk about like getting to know a junior in high school and then walking, watching that junior become a freshman in college and then watching that freshman in college, you know, become the 11th overall draft pick like KP, Kevin Parada, you know, like getting to watch that guy ball out and struggle and be like, dude, you're not struggling, you know, like, you, you know, going through a process like that, watching Justin Henry Malloy transfer in from Vandy in his first full season, he's in AAA. So doing some of the same things, you know, had a chance to do as a player. So couldn't be more proud of the players that had a chance to coach and so many of their success stories of them getting married or having families or just going through that same grind of a lifestyle, playing for some of the same teams or in the same stadiums that I had a chance to play in. That's the rewarding part about doing it on this side of coaching and just, you know, we want to win national championships here. We want guys to leave the program and know that they left it a better place, but also that they got a degree uh, in a, in a great education. And then they were ready. Um, one of the things, Tres Gonzalez, Andrew Jenkins, Chandler Simpson, a couple of our hitters, KP, all those guys come back. Right. And one of the questions I asked, like, how prepared did you feel? And almost all of them, like first thing out of their mouths, uh, was like by far the best, all my teammates in my organization, like, how are you so prepared? The, you know, the way that this team is scouting, you know, kind of how to read these plots, you know, how to, how to talk the talk with our hitting coordinator on what the high leverage goals are, what you need to do. That's awesome. And I hope that that just attracts more talent like we've done in recruiting. And it also um, just, you know, once again, we have a great tradition at Georgia Tech. Can we continue that great tradition in the future? Because of that reason, the relationships with kids, knowing these kids, a lot of times, like you mentioned, with a lot of times when they're 14, 15 years old, you have this long-term relationship with them. Obviously, that means that it is not hard whatsoever for you to pull full-heartedly for you guys and your team when you play Florida State. When Florida State and Georgia Tech play in football, is there any part of you that is like quietly, quietly, quietly go Knowles? Man, I have to I have to plead the fifth at times too. Um, you know, I've gotten to know like Brent Kier, our football coach now, has become a good friend of mine. I think, you know, you see that, you know, you got to play the politics down the middle of what you want. I think I, I joked that whatever team needs the win more right now is the one that, you know, ultimately, you know, I'm going to cheer for. Um, you know, I think that it's a, it's a great deal. Um, historically, they don't have to play every year either. So just like I said, that inner competitor in me, like gets to, you know, breathe a little easier when they're not locking horns every year. But 
No, I mean, being at Georgia Tech, I mean, it's been fun to see the program grow. Obviously, I'm super proud of, um, you know, Florida State baseball program, football program, all of them still kind of cheering wholeheartedly for them. And, you know, being in the ACC, it's a conference that's meant a lot to me. Uh, a lot of the same coaches getting to, you know, compete against them now or guys that I played against, uh, you know, that are in coaching. So, you know, everything's in a, in a great place right now. And, uh, you know, both programs are moving in a great direction. To wrap, if you could give yourself a pep talk at 22, right after signing with the Cardinals heading into minor league ball, what would that pep talk look like? And I mean, if you're replicating that pep talk with any of your Georgia Tech seniors headed into pro ball. Yeah, no, I definitely do. I mean, I think it's, it's all about, um, you know, you have to, once again, you got to take all the positives you can. This, this is going to be a journey. Um, don't try to make it all up in, in a, in a, at bat in a week in a month, even just kind of keep in perspective on, keep loving it, keep seeking out the right type of advice, but also keep realizing that you got here for a reason. Um, I think that the, the piece about, you know, competing, I think, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, signing bonus and stuff. I remember living on the floor on a mattress, like choosing not to spend money. Um, and there's definitely some things that I probably would have spent some money on early on just to make sure that I had a better living situation or, you know, anything like that. But I think it, I think at 22, or 21, whatever age guys are when they sign 20 years old, it's just like, man, you can't get too wrapped up in the business. You need to be the same guy that was playing wiffle ball in the backyard. You need to have fun. You need to feel like you can be uh, the best version of yourself. And I think that, you know, with getting moved up and down mid years and all that, uh, switching organizations, getting traded, you can't get too consumed in that. You just got to be, be yourself, learn how to find a way for that contentment and, and not to creep over into complacency, but being like, man, you got a great job, go, you know, work your tail off, do whatever you can and just let the chips kind of fall where they may. And you'll be really proud of yourself when your career is over. Quick rapid fire for where then I'll let you get out of here. Favorite minor league ballpark, man. It's always the ones you hit well at, right? I mean, I love my time in Springfield. I loved Columbus. Um, you know, those are the ones as a visitor, I'd probably say Durham, uh, just always hit there and always loved kind of the backdrop. Now we played the ACC tournament there. And I mean, Charlotte's got to be right behind it. Just beautiful ballpark, uh, hitters park. And like I said, even if the park was the, the best and the, the, the people were the nicest, if you don't get any hits there, you can't, you can't have it be your favorite. Favorite college ballpark as a visitor, no Florida state, no Georgia tech. As a visitor, favorite ballpark, man. I'm just a big fan of, of playing in front of a lot of fans being in a rowdy atmosphere. So, you know, I mean, I think you, you go to Clemson, you know, you go to Carolina, it's got that homey kind of feel kind of sunken down a little bit um, in our division. Those are probably some of them. I mean, I love playing in Athens, love playing in, at Auburn. Uh, Tennessee was incredible. Vanderbilt the year before. I mean, I know it's a super cop out answer, but I mean, for me, there's so many great venues in college baseball that, it really comes down to as a coach now too, like you just love coming in and having your little contingency of fans in the outfield, you know, portion of the stands and picking up a big victory. Best pitcher you ever faced. I, I mean, I think there's obviously plenty of asterisks and I told Appel and Stroman, those are some of my boys, Danny Holton at the time was by far the best pitcher. No question. Um, got to face Sean Gilmartin a bunch myself as, you know, left on left, but Holton from 2009. And then I will say, though, in a one-game scenario, Matt Perk was probably equally a cheat code, uh, 2010 version of Matt Perk. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was 
I think Fred BA's freshman of the year that year. Uh, would you rather beat Miami or Florida? Yes. <laughs> both. And I think both had a winning record against and not that, not that I kept track of that to this day, but uh, those are some of the sweetest victories for sure. Last one. Everyone gets this. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues? I, I probably have several that you just like have stored in your mind that you never want to let out. Um, I, I mean that, that pool raft encounter saved me from probably a nightmare because I had just enough support to withstand like a 16 hour all-star break fiasco. That, I mean, everyone's got one just that, the buses will always be there to to remind guys that in the minor leagues. James Ramsey, that is all I've got for you. Thank you so much for joining from Phenon on the Farm. Good luck this spring. Thanks a lot, Kyle. You got it. And that's it for our conversation with James Ramsey. Big thanks to him for stopping by, and best of luck to the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets this year. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, rate and leave a review, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.